We have been emphasizing that the gospel is the good news of how God came to deliver us from our sin. The root of sin is selfishness and self-centeredness. We have been stressing that Jesus taught the first and great commandment is that thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. The second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It is in those two commandments that Jesus said all of the law and the prophets hang. In other words, everything else in the word of God is an explanation of what it means to love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and our brother as ourself. We fail, we have fallen short, and thus we need a savior. We need a deliverer. Christ came to deliver us from sin and transform our relationship to God and others. As a result of being truly born again, we now love God and we love others. We saw that last week. A basis for loving others is the reality of Christ dying, not just for ourselves, but for our brothers and sisters in Christ as well. Thus, we have a moral and ethical duty to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's where we concluded last week. Today, we want to further examine the exhortation to love one another. What does that mean? What does that look like? Our theme this morning is that the exhortation to love one another is an exhortation to a rugged commitment. Let me say that again. The exhortation to love one another is an exhortation to a rugged commitment. And before I go any further, I need to acknowledge that I am greatly indebted to Scott McKnight and his book entitled A Fellowship of Difference. That's D-I-F-F-E-R-N-T-S, The Difference Among Us, for many of these thoughts. So I acknowledge that Uh, Again, I'm indebted to Scott McKnight for some of these thoughts. Love is a commitment. It is not an emotion or a feeling. Biblical love is quite different from what the world thinks of love. Love is a commitment to one another. As we think about love in the church, it is not a commitment to a program. And it is not a commitment to an organization. Our committedness is to God and to one another. The body of Christ. The family of God. The church is not to be viewed as an organization. It is to be likened unto a body or a family. And we're going to be stressing the family analogy this morning. If you have a problem with the church, you have a problem with God's people. If you are upset with the church, you are upset with your brother or sister in Christ. The church is us this morning as a local church. Love is a rugged commitment. 
That is Scott McKnight's term, and I love that term, a rugged commitment. Uh, I thought the exact same line I was going to say that love is a commitment. I think that is so clear in the scripture. But he talks about a rugged commitment. It is an enduring commitment. Rugged because it has to persevere through hardships and difficulties. Many times people are very unrealistic about love. People enter into marriage with an unrealistic expectation that they think every moment is going to be filled with marital bliss. It is just going to be one delightful day after another. Jared and Jen, you have a rude awakening before you. Marriages go through hard times. Marriages go through difficulties. Marriages go through heartaches. Marriages go through pain and suffering. And so the wedding vows are to take one another to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to death do us part. That's the rugged commitment. A commitment until death. Nothing is going to separate a married couple other than death. Not riches or poorness, not sickness or health. No, adversity is going to come between and end a marital relationship, thus the marital vows. In similar fashion, people have an idyllic view as opposed to a realistic view of the church. They think that church relationships are going to be perfect, that there are not going to be any disagreements, no disharmonies, no difficult times, no trials, no pain, no suffering. That is simply not the case. Just as in marital relationships, there are struggles, in the church there are struggles. But just as in the marital relationship there is to be a rugged commitment to see through and reconcile those differences, so too in the church there needs to be a commitment to reconcile and work through and continue in that endured Commitment to one another. Love is not for wimps. It is too often sentimentalized and idealized. Love is a rugged commitment. Love means we are committed to another even when it is demanding, hard, unpleasant, and difficult to be so. That is not the modern conception of the church. People today leave churches over the most insignificant and irrelevant issues. There is not a commitment to one another. There is not a recognition that God has called us together to be a people of God. It's viewed in individualistic ways. The church exists for my needs. As long as it's meeting my needs, I'm content. If it's not meeting my needs, I'm out of here. That's wrong for a marriage, and that's wrong for a church. It is an enduring commitment. And love's commitment can be described in three ways this morning. The first is that love is a rugged commitment to be with one another. 
a rugged commitment to be with one another. Again, Scott McKnight. This is a principle of presence. Love is a commitment to be with one another, physically present with one another. As you think about the Godhead, John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The triune God existed in all eternity past, together, enjoying their presence and fellowship. Christ made a commitment to be with his people. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory, and glories of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. Matthew 1.23 says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. God loved us and manifested his presence with us. Christ came to earth to be with his disciples. Look with me at John 17, 12. I'm not going to exposit this whole chapter. I can't, but we're going to highlight portions from it. John 17, 12. Jesus said, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. While I was with them. I kept them in your name. While my presence was manifested with them, I kept them in your name. Christ loved being with his disciples in exercising religious duties and functions. Just before Jesus died, he entered into a celebration of the Passover with his disciples. He turned that Passover meal into communion But Jesus said these words in Luke 22, 15. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. I eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. Not alone with them. For this Passover had tremendous significance for the disciples. And Jesus couldn't wait to eat that Passover meal with his disciples. Christ prayed that his disciples would be with him in glory. Look at John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. That we would be with him where he is. It is God's design and purpose in salvation that we would be with him and each other for all eternity. Revelation 21.3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them. Three times in one single verse, it's talking about God being with his people. Love is a rugged commitment to be with each other. Why do people get married? To be with each other. To spend their lives together. To experience the same things. To enjoy their fellowship, their communion. They want to be together. The church That very word means called out ones. 
we are summoned as a people to be together. To be together. To be with each other. That has implications that goes far beyond the morning worship service. Far beyond Sunday school. Or even the Wednesday night prayer meetings. That's a start. But it's not the end. It is a matter of God's people wanting to be together. It is why we have the fellowship events that we do. It's why we have a campfire service. To create an opportunity for God's people to be together, to mingle, to talk, to get to know people that you don't know very well, to find out what makes people tick, to understand where the issues are in their life, what you can pray for, how you can be a help to them. These opportunities of being together. One incredible opportunity that I would just put before you as a, as a congregation is Pinebrook Bible Conference, the summer conference. We have a week where this year I think well over 100 people from our congregation are going to be at Pinebrook for a week together. What a unique opportunity. You play games together, you sit through services together, you don't have to cook meals, you can sit around tables. We see each other in a light that we never see each other in in other circumstances. You will see me very different at Pinebrook than what you see me behind a pulpit. You get to know each other. Take advantage of these opportunities. They are what knit us into a family. It is in these shared experiences that we really begin to understand each other's needs and we can encourage one another. Secondly, love is a rugged commitment to be for one another. To be for one another. It is one thing to be with someone. It's quite another to be for someone. To be for someone is a principle of advocacy. To be for one is to be on their side. To be on their side. A commitment to help, to encourage, to be on their side. Christ was on the side of the disciples. Look with me at John chapter 17, verse 9. John 17, 9. He says, I am praying for them. Now these strong words, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. It was a unique commitment of Christ to the disciples. So there can be no misunderstanding. He says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. This high priestly prayer of John chapter 17 is uniquely for the people of God. In this passage, it is us against them. But not in an adversarial way. But it is a unique 
way in which Jesus is on our side. It was not just for the immediate disciples, however, that Jesus was for. Notice verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's right down to us, the ensuing generations. Not just for the immediate disciples, but all of those disciples that would come by hearing the word of God as it's passed down through the generations. So it comes down to us as well. He was praying for us. The reason that Christ was on our side is because we belong to the Father. Notice verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Yours there were, and you gave them to me. Earlier, in John 17, verse 1 and 2, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all of whom you have given him. Look with me at John 17, 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Why? For they are yours. For they are yours. It's a continuation of the idea that we saw last week, that Jesus Christ not only died for me, but he died for us. And we belong to God. And because we belong to God, therefore, we are on the same side. We are for one another. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. You may have heard the statement, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. How many have heard that? Okay. You can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. Okay. You're stuck with your family. Your mother, your father, your sister, and your brother. Okay. You're born into that network. That is your family. Likewise, you can't pick your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're stuck with your brother and sister in Christ, and they're stuck with you. You haven't chosen them. They've been chosen for you by God. And we now have a relationship to each other because we have a relationship to God. There is a false unity. There is a worldly unity of which the scriptures do not speak. Okay? That's why Scott McKnight talks about a fellowship of difference. D-I-F-F-E-R-N-T-S because we are different. And when the world has fellowship, it is usually based on a sameness. A sameness. The same ethnic group. The same age group. 
the same interests, the same likes. So people join a baseball team because they all like baseball. Or they join a motorcycle club because they all enjoy riding a motorcycle. So often, even in churches, you will go and you'll see a church and they're a church of 30-somethings. Or they're a church of all gray-haired people. Or they're all Spanish. Or they're all Caucasian. Or they're all this. Or they're all that. But the body of Christ is different. We are unique. We are black. We are white. We are Hispanic. We are young. We are old. Galatians says this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. The scripture says that in Christ, these worldly differences don't matter. The great truth of the gospel was, in Ephesians chapter 2, that he has broken down the middle wall of the partition between Jew and Gentile. Two groups that hated each other, that wouldn't sit down to eat with each other, would now take communion with each other. It is to be a radical transformation of relationships. For our common bound is not motorcycles or baseball, but our common ground is a personal relationship to Jesus Christ. We are born again. And that is what unites us. And it trumps everything else. Nothing else matters other than the fact that we know the Lord Jesus Christ. God is on our side. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, if you would. Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 31. Romans 8, 31. What shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is on our side, who can undo us? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall lay, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing 
can cause God to stop loving us. Now the question is, what will stop you from loving each other? What in this list will we say, that's it? It's too much. I want nothing more to do with that person. I'm out of here. I write them off. God, who will never write us off, has called us to a relationship where we never write each other off. An enduring, rugged commitment to one another. We are to be on one another's side, defending one another, encouraging one another, helping one another. The scripture teaches us that we are to laugh with those that laugh, and we are to weep with those that weep. We are to be for one another when things go well. We should not envy when someone else prospers. We should not be upset when they are honored, when they are exalted. We ought to rejoice with them. And when somebody stumbles, when somebody falters, when somebody struggles, we ought to weep for them and be there to help them up and to encourage them and strengthen them. We protect one another. We defend one another. Jesus said in this passage that he lost none of those that were given to him except the son of perdition because he wasn't one of the elect. God doesn't lose one of his people. Do we weep when people no longer worship with us? Does it tear us apart when people just walk away Or does it rip at our heartstrings? Are we committed to one another? And each other's children, each other's families. Love is a rugged commitment to be for one another. And then lastly, love is a rugged commitment unto one another. It is a commitment together to accomplish Mutual goals and ambitions. God had a goal in saving us. It's where we left off last week in 1 John. Listen to these words in 1 John, remembering that John wrote both John and 1 John. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us And his love is perfected in us. Perfected. That word means to be completed. It's a word of goal. Goal, God had a reason in loving us. The goal in loving us was that we would love him and that we would love one another. And that goal is achieved By God's grace. The most important goal for us as a people of God is to glorify him and demonstrate his oneness to the world. Look at John 17, 20 and following. 
John 17, 20. I do not ask for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. This is what he prays for, that they may all be one. Now these incredible words, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. They would be one even as the Trinity is one. Verse 23, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Perfectly one. It's the same word that's used in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. Perfectly one. An indivisible oneness. Just as you cannot distinguish in the Godhead God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that they are indivisibly one. A oneness that that we can't even explain. Who can explain the Trinity? But that, that perfect union is to be reflected in our love for each other. The challenge is to display the union of the Godhead, the indivisible union of the Godhead in our relationship that nothing will separate us. Nothing will separate us. Now, there are two unions that God has given to establish, to demonstrate the unity of the Godhead. In the book of Genesis... God created man, and God said, let us create man in our image, after our likeness. Notice the plural pronouns. In our image, after our likeness. And then it says, male and female created he them. God created man and woman to, cre- to represent the image of the Godhead, this unity. They could not represent the Godhead alone. Individually, they could not reflect the Godhead. They could not show forth the relationship of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In order to show forth that relationship, it took more than one individual. And so he created Adam and Eve. And it says of them that they are to leave their father and mother and shall cleave unto each other and they shall be one flesh. One flesh. Committed to one another. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 5, it says this. Therefore, A man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. What God has brought together and established is one. 
Don't let anyone take apart. Don't let anyone take apart. The church is to represent the unique relationships that God allows, that, that God is able to impart to us. The world knows nothing of this kind of love. Our marital union is to represent the relationship of Christ in the church. Ephesians chapter 5. Nothing can separate the church from Christ's love. That's what's to be represented in our marriages. People, you know what's wrong with living together? You say, well, it violates God's word. Yes, it does. But, but what is wrong with living together? It's void of the commitment. It's void of that commitment that we will be together till death do us part. It is void of a relationship that demonstrates the love of the Godhead. that is indivisible for all eternity, and a love that has been shown to us that we would dwell with him forever and ever. Our world talks about love, but they don't understand commitment. They don't understand the hardship. They don't understand the difficulty. They don't understand the sacrifice. We don't give lip service to the fact that the Son of God died for us. You can't get more committed than that. And God has called us to be committed not only in our marriages, but God has called us to be committed in our relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we are to be with each other no matter what. Rooting each other on. Cheering each other on. And we find out that the goal is to reveal the person of God. Notice John 17, 20 and following. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may also be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Now these words, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. The greatest proof the greatest demonstration of the existence of God and his purpose in salvation is the resulting change in our relationships. The world knows nothing of this kind of commitment. It knows nothing of this kind of love. When we show this kind of love, we show the work of God in our hearts and our lives because mankind is sinful. Because mankind is selfish. 
Because we didn't love God with our heart and all our soul and all our mind. Because we did not love our neighbor as ourselves. But as God works in us, now we love him and we love our brother and sister in Christ. Now we're concerned for his glory. Now we live our lives not just for ourselves, but for him. And so I take into account my marriage is not just for my own bliss and it's not just for my own happiness. It's also to glorify him and to exalt him and to reveal him. And when I come to church, it's not just for my own benefit. It's not just for my own amusement. It's not just for my own personal development. It's so that we can glorify him in our relationship to each other. And just as it was impossible for one person to represent the Trinity, and so God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and so he made them male and female, so too we can't really show forth the glory of God in our lives individually. We do it corporately. It's only in our relationship to each other that we can show that love. That's why he has commanded us to be together. It is that rugged commitment that shows and demonstrates the work of God. The world longs for the love that is described in the scriptures. People desperately seek love. There is nothing that the world talks about more than love. There is nothing more that the world professes than love. And there's nothing that the world trivializes more than love. If you'd put the screen down, please. Uh, I'd like you to watch a commercial. It's one that, it's an old commercial, but I think most of you have seen it. But uh, I just want to show the way in which The world trivializes love. A love that they long for. A love that they desire. It's the real thing. Buy the world a Coke. Show them that, they, that you love them. 
Show them you want to be with them. It's interesting, if you listen to those lyrics carefully, the elements that are in this passage, that you love them, that you want to be with them, that you care for them. Give them a Coke. It's the real thing. The real thing is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The real thing is the love of God. And when we have the real thing, it's the most beautiful thing on the face of this earth. May we love not in word only, 1 John says, but in deed and in truth. May we show real love, real commitment to be with one another, to be for one another, and to be unto one another in our marriages. Let's commit to wholesome relationships, God-honoring marriages of absolute commitment that nothing will separate us. Let us commit ourselves to a relationship to each other that nothing is going to come between us. Nothing is going to separate us. None of the trivial, insignificant issues that our society is filled with. May we long for something that is more important than our own happiness, our own fulfillment, our own desires. May we put God first and others before ourselves. May we show a transformed love that God provides and God enables. Let us have a rugged commitment. I've asked that uh, we sing what was going to be the second song as our closing response for, I think, it most uh, uh, adequately represents a response of what I was uh, hoping for in this, this message. You'll find the lyrics inside your bulletin. Uh, please pull out the insert. It's labeled, how, Oh, How Good It Is. It's got three verses. It's a fairly simple song, three verses and three choruses. There is an interlude in between the second and the third, so be aware of that. But let's stand together as we sing the song and learn it for the first time, and we'll certainly have an opportunity to sing this as the weeks go on. Oh, how good it is. Oh, how good it is when the family of God dwells together in spirit and faith and unity, where the bonds of peace, of acceptance and love are the fruit of His presence here among us. So with one voice we'll sing to the Lord And with one heart we'll live out His word Till the whole world sees The Redeemer has come For He dwells in the presence of His being 
good it is on this journey we share to rejoice with the happy and weep with those who mourn for the weak find strength the afflicted find grace when we offer the blessing of belonging so with one voice we'll sing to the lord and with one heart we'll live out his word till the whole world sees the redeemer has come for he dwells in the presence command to prefer one another forgive as he forgives when we live as one we all share in the love of the son with the father and the spirit so with one voice we'll sing to the lord Let's pray. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we are thankful for your presence. We rejoice in your promise that where two or three are gathered together, there are you in the midst. We are thankful, O God, for bringing us together, for dying for us, for choosing us before the foundation of the world, for establishing us in your body as the people of God. O Lord, may our hearts be committed to you and to one another. May there be purpose in our relationships. Oh God, be pleased to show forth your power, your redeeming work, how that you can change our hearts of selfishness and self-centeredness into hearts that want to glorify you and to love one another. Oh Lord, help us to see that there is nothing that glorifies you like that spirit of sacrifice as we Encourage and help one another to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ until one day we are going to stand before you in a perfect oneness. Enjoying our relationship with you and with each other for all eternity with no sin, no division, no heartache, no misery. Oh Lord, give us a glimpse, give us a hungering, give us a manifestation 
of that real, authentic love, even in our church this day. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.